Hi, this is Janet Lansbury. Welcome to Unruffled. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Keisha Reed. Keisha has been in the early childhood field for 28 years. She's a true veteran, and she continues to actively work in the classroom. She's been a tenacious advocate of developmentally appropriate play-based education for young children for decades and has collaborated with uh, Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood, Explorations Early Learning, and many, many more. She sits on the board of Defending the Early Years, which is a early childhood advocacy group. So we're going to discuss the importance of a play-focused early childhood for all of our children, why this matters and should even take precedence over other kinds of learning. Hi, Keisha. Thank you so much for being with me today. Hi, Janet. I am so excited to be here and talk with you. Me too. I feel like I've known you for a long time because I've known of you and your work and uh, you're quite renowned in my world and you know, you're a veteran in this. I think we've almost been in this field the same amount of time or maybe you've been in a bit longer even. So I can't believe we've never talked before, but I'm really glad that we're going to do it finally. Same here. I feel like I know you. I've been listening to your podcast and reading your work and I'm just, I'm honored. Thank you. Well, I want to jump right in and ask, what first lit your fire with the power of play? What made you first realize how important that it was to support, protect, defend, advocate for play in the early years? I think I have to go, honestly, all the way back to my own childhood, because that is where I learned who I was, like who I am. That's where I learned how to take risks, how to be strong and powerful, where I first learned that, hey, girl, you are smart. Leaning back on those times, those times when I, I can remember a particular time that uh, my friends and I had ventured further away from home than we had ever ventured. And I remember actually like having this conversation with myself that i I'm doing this without my mom. Like I'm going far away and I'm doing this exciting thing and just the exhilarating feeling that I had that sense of freedom going out on an adventure. So that feeling is what I always want to evoke in other children because it started from there and within me, something grew like just this sense of self and this strongness I had proven to myself through my adventures outside in play, through my playing in the creek and climbing trees and running fast. It just kept solidifying within me how strong I am, how capable I am, how smart I am. And I took that with me all the way through school when I felt like something was too tough or I wasn't ready for something. I was reminded through those times that I was playing that I can do it, that I'm strong, that I'm confident, that I'm creative. And I just fell back on that. So when I began working with young children, I just had this playfulness because I've always pulled back there. But being in programs that were more traditional and not play-based, I had to keep reminding myself of those feelings and going back to that place so that I can make sure that I provided an environment that evoked that same feeling in young children. So it's a digging way back into myself to remember the importance of childhood. And it sounds like even though maybe you weren't encouraged in school to engage your play self into learning, that you were able to balance that at least 
beyond school, like you said, you would remind yourself, oh, yeah, I can do stuff. I'm capable. I've got all this in me. And, you know, these people's measurements, I don't know, either aren't as important or this is just as important and this is who I really am. That's amazing that you were able to do that because I think sometimes uh, not all children are, are able to stay in tune with that side of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And working with young children in a more structured environment in the early part of my career, I found that I was always the teacher who had to close her door because we were the noisiest classroom and we, we let the kids get the messiest. We had the most open-ended materials and maybe we went off the schedule and maybe we stayed outside 30 minutes or 40 minutes longer than we were supposed to. So I was that teacher that everybody else looked at like, what is wrong with her? (laughs) She can't control her class. And then a shift for me was I began to share what I was seeing in young children with their parents with other educators that worked with me. And I did that through photography. I would take pictures of the children, not having them freeze and smile at the camera, but really taking pictures of what they were doing, really trying to retell the experiences that they were having. I did a lot of writing that went with the photos and I would put them in the hallway. So this started to create interest, like parents would stop and read it and look at it and start having dialogue around the photos and talking to their child about it in the hallway. And then I think other teachers started to notice, oh, well, the parents are interested in that. And I want them to stand around my door in the hall. So let me kind of figure out what this, this documentation stuff is. And we just started to value sharing what we knew and saw that children were capable of doing in our play environment within my classroom with others. And it just started to catch on to other teachers in the building. That's so cool. It sounds like you were photographing the process, which is what does get lost when we might wonder as parents, what is my child learning? And then we're not seeing any concrete example of that. You know, they're not coming home with a sculpture or a a math worksheet. But what you did was find a way to capture the beauty and the much more powerful learning that happens in the process of a child you know, engaging actively in learning instead of, you know, just trying to make a result. Mm -hmm. But really, that's what real learning is, is being able to be in a process. Yes. And watching it unfold. There was a sense of excitement around that. So the language and the ideas started to shift from, like you said, that product and, you know, mom, this is what I made to here is a more detailed conversation, a nuanced conversation that's back and forth about what we experienced. And look how engaged they are. Yeah. And look how excited they are about the whole idea of learning something and doing something with their whole selves. It wasn't just a sitting at a desk and completing a task that an adult gave to them. It was the opposite. It was standing up, moving, and doing the things that their bodies told them that they needed to do. I love that. So I was still working in traditional programs for a while. Even after that, I was always the sore thumb, always the person asking, well, why do we have to make everyone nap at the same time? Why can't they, you know, play in the mud? I was the teacher who took her kids to the creek, stayed all day, came back. I'll never forget (laughs) the day we came back and we were muddy. This was not the school for that, but we came back and I had the kids. We were all like standing on the wall. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to hose you guys off so we can go in this building. And right before I turn the hose on, the owner comes up 
And she gives me just this, this look. And I'm like, oh, you know, don't worry. We're going to be clean when we go in the building. I had to make compromises, but nothing got in my way of allowing these children to play. If, if we had a math objective and I had to allow them to go into the forest and search for rocks and sticks and whatever, and just document their experiences with those things and then fit it into the curriculum, into what was required of me, I'd do that. It may be a little bit extra work for me, but it's so much more meaningful. So I was just attempting to prove that it didn't take a worksheet. In fact, real life experiences were much more valuable. Yeah, because it's not only what they're learning there, but it's that they're learning to love learning and they're learning how learning works and that they can do it. You know, all that thing about being capable again, that like, hey, I'm really good at this when I'm into it, you know, because I'm doing it through my own interest. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. You know, I'm totally on board with this. And one thing you brought up also makes me consider if we do value this type of child-driven play, and a lot of parents do, what gets in the way of us allowing this, do you think, as parents, as teachers, as a society maybe? What are the, the barriers that are making it harder for us to allow children this extremely valuable for life experience? I think there's so many things. We have more parents who need to work now. We have smaller families, so grandparents may not be living with them. I grew up with my grandmother living with me, so somebody was always home. We were always outside, always able to play. Someone, someone's mother or grandmother was in some window watching us from somewhere. We knew all of our neighbors. Um, it was just slower pace. You know, everything was slower. We weren't rushing off to soccer, gymnastics, or swimming. Our extracurricular was go outside and play until the streetlights come on. So I think just the faster pace of life, the necessity for multiple parents to work, find children in after school programs more often, the high stakes testing and pressure on academics and homework, that has started to take up more of children's lives than it ever did before. So before you went to school, you came home, you did a five minute coloring page or something, and then you're out the door. Now it's so much more of a burden on young children's time. They just don't have as much time as they did before. Yeah. And I mean, even those after-school programs, though, could be designed the way you designed your program. They could still offer that. But I think just putting myself in the parent position and all the parents I hear from, we worry sometimes that our child is going to miss out on something else, or maybe we think that we're being neglectful or lazy just to let them go run off to the creek or go play or do their own thing. Or, you know, we feel like we're being better parents to make sure that they're getting all this enrichment. But it's exactly what you, what you said is like that slow life, that simplicity is where the freedom is for them. Yes. I guess there are worries maybe as parents and then the worries as parents get transmitted into the worries as educators. They're picking up like, what if our child misses out on these windows for language learning, for music, taking an instrument, for, you know, sports, they've got to know what it's like to be on a team. We're deciding all these experiences that we 
want to make sure that they have. And therefore, we're like eliminating the most important things of all. Yeah, which is just time and space to be creative, to play, to make friendships with people in authentic ways. I think there's a time and a place and an age for team sports and those different experiences. But I think when children are young, they don't need that. You like soccer? Okay, let's go kick a ball. Let's go to the playground, bring a ball, have some friends gather around and, and, and experience the idea of kicking the ball, running after the ball, playing with friends, creating new games. When I was young, we would arrange huge games of kickball and dodgeball and soccer and all these amazing things that we had to come up with the rules for. We had to organize the players. We had to go around and knock on doors and find the players. We had to negotiate to make teams. We had to decide who was in charge of who is out or who is in, who's a ref. All of those things we did within our community of mixed age group players. So if you really think about it, the only thing that we were missing out on is having someone outside of the play, an adult, tell us how, where, when, and what. But how much more valuable is it when you have to organize, you have to plan, you have to think, you have to negotiate. It's just so much more valuable. And you still get the team play. You still get the collaborative play. You still get the excitement of a win. You know, all of those things that people look to team sports to achieve. I would even argue that it's more conducive to being a team player because I don't know when you were saying that it almost made me picture like a lens that's like you're all the way zoomed in and you're just zoomed in maybe as a parent of I want my child to get the skills in this sport and everything that they need, you know, to be on this team. And I want to, you know, make sure because I'm a caring parent that my child, you know, becomes the best soccer player they could be, let's say. And so we're, we're zooming in and we're kind of getting this really myopic perspective on it rather than zooming way back out and saying, oh my gosh, the learning that's going on here is like a million times more important. And with that zoomed in lens, it's like, oh, well, this kid is doing it better. Maybe and the coach likes them better and they're getting a better position or they're getting, you know, and it, it's not conducive to, to real team playing. And you know what? A lot of this is attached to academics because if you're going to get into the best college, you got to have a resume and it's starting younger and younger where, you know, we're looking for scholarships to such and such a school. So it starts to become this resume builder at such a young age. And it's a lot of times attached to that academic piece, that ultimate plan of happiness that we as a society feel comes with checking off the boxes to getting into the right college so that you can get the right job, chasing after this happiness, when really that comes from that sense of knowing, that following of your passions, that sense of community and belonging and all those things that can sometimes be missing when we're chasing happiness. Yeah, exactly. Those, those life skills. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that that rush to get kids ready for the next thing gets in the way with the thing, which is that they need to experience every stage of development, ideally, and to be trusted to know what they're ready for and what they're interested in. And yeah, I mean, it doesn't really help a lot of parents either, because I do hear from many people who have their child in gymnastics or uh, a music class or dance, and they get frustrated because their child doesn't want to go 
This might be like a four-year-old, five-year-old child, or even a six-year-old child or older, and the child doesn't want to go. The child doesn't want to go to practice. They won't participate when they get there, and it becomes this kind of feeling of failure. I think for for everybody, for the parents, for the child. So it it often doesn't serve us as parents because now we're putting ourselves into the situation where we're frustrated because of our agenda when all we had to do was really let go of our agenda and trust a little bit more. But it is hard to be that parent who believes these things and have the child who's not signed up for anything when everybody else in their preschool class is on the t-ball team or is taking whatever the lessons are. It is hard to be that parent. Yeah, that peer pressure. I know. I hear that a lot from parents too, that they they want to trust, but everybody around them is, you know, even family members or everyone around them is is giving them d- more doubt. And uh, so that's why I love that somebody like you is out there. You know, you're so important because you're a defender of this type of learning and you're out there advocating. But yeah, it's hard to hear that with all the other noise. My advice for a parent that feels that way, if everyone around you is just their child is in something or multiple things, and you just don't think it's the best thing for your child, but you also feel kind of left out of that. My advice would be to invite them over in your backyard. If you have a backyard or a grassy area that you can find and just play, you know, invite them over for open-ended play so that your child now still has some experiences with these children And they're doing something, but it is open-ended and it's play. And the the parent still has that social aspect. Because I think a lot of it is social for the parents. You know, the kids are in whatever the sport is. They're playing or they're practicing. And now the the parents can sit back and hang out and chat and talk. And so there's a social aspect of it for the parents as well. So I think that we can kind of meet a lot of the needs or a lot of the desires of everyone involved. With a simple backyard, bring a snack, bring some balls, and play. Yeah, just a gathering, a a, uh, a weekly gathering. Just a simple gathering. You know, I would say also in my experience that a lot of these things that maybe we're excited about as parents, like that the other parents are going to be there and my kids are all on this team or my kids are all in this dance program and that community feeling that that I have. Or maybe we loved dance as a child and we can't wait to get our child in there. There were so many things like that, even taking my child to an amusement park or, you know, story time at the library or I couldn't wait. I was excited to have my child do that. And, you know, I've been trained with Magda Gerber, who is so much about let the child lead their development, like trust them, trust them, trust them, basic trust in them. But I would feel myself being like, oh gosh, I want to do this now. I would make myself wait almost always. I mean, there were a couple of times I didn't, but and I, and then I learned like, you know what, this would have been more fun just to be in our backyard this afternoon than go to that puppet show with the marionettes where she had to sit there. And it was, it wasn't as great as when I was a kid or maybe I was older and I was able to appreciate it more. But when we wait and we allow children to come into experience, first of all, because they want to, because they're eager that they're, you know, ready and therefore like you can trust almost they're wanting to if we're not the ones bringing it up at first. If it actually comes from them, you can really trust, oh, my child might be ready for this experience now. And then maybe we've read a book about it, you know, or they've gone to watch a practice or they have a real sense of what it is. And then they come into these experiences that we're so excited for them to have. 
with this grace and all these things that readiness offers that we can't force. And so many times that happened where I was like, oh gosh, if I would have taken her or him to this thing earlier, we did it earlier, they would have been striving, they would have been trying, they maybe would have been trying to please me. On I was going to say, yep. Because they feel they should. And the idea of like coming in at the top of an experience, like so ready for it, is just this magic, you know, but it's hard to wait. So I think our impatience sometimes can get in the way. It's just this sense of them having an intrinsic motivation versus something that comes from outside of themselves. I had a student once and she just, I mean, she was born to dance. She was born to dance. She walked around like a dancer. She carried herself like a dancer. I have a dance background. So she literally had me. I mean, this child had me. She grabbed my arm. She would come to school with, uh, she started this at four years old. She would come to school with leotards, not just for herself, but for her friends as well ballet slippers, all the things. And she would tell me different types of music that she wanted to listen to Um, slow, or I want to listen to just pianos. And she would say, okay, teach me. And she would have me teach her. Okay. All right. So what does this called? And we would do a lesson as long as she wanted to do a lesson. And it was her, it was it hundred percent came from within this child that she wanted to do these things. I don't know. She probably had seen something or uh, maybe an older sister who did ballet. I'm not sure what it was, but there was a deep interest within this child to move in this way. Even when she wasn't dancing, she moved with grace and on her toes and, you know, stretching her arms out fully. And I don't deny that, you know, that when there's an intrinsic passion, by all means, allow them to shower themselves in it. Because playing dance is not the same as actually having to do an hour of standing still, waiting your turn, standing up straight. There's a difference, you know, there's there's a playing around with the passion until her development is in a place where she can do those things in a structured fashion. So uh, I don't know. I just found it very um, magical to watch this child grow into her passion at such a young age. Yeah. And sometimes they create their own dance. But then once they start the class, then now they know there's a right way and a wrong way. And I only can do it this way. And it actually makes them less free. A child like that, that you, you know, you were able to follow her lead and do all of that. I can see how parents, because probably everyone else would be telling them this too. They see this talent and they're thinking, you'd better get her in our class now, or it's going to go away somehow. I think that's another thing that gets in our way. We think something's going to disappear. If our child seems interested in reading, gosh, we might think we better start really teaching them because this might go away and then they're going to lose this. Or even with toilet training or something, maybe their child goes on the potty once. So, gosh, we better stay on this track. I better make sure that my child doesn't ever use diapers again because otherwise she's going to lose something. So I think we can fear that too as parents, that somehow our child is going to lose momentum on something. But that's the opposite of what it's really like when you're ready for something. You can't put it out, really, or it's hard to. I guess you can if it becomes not fun. I've also known a lot of children with that experience. Something was really fun for them, but then they took the course, and maybe too early, or maybe it was the wrong kind of course, and then it wasn't fun for them anymore. And they drop it. The passion's gone. Yeah, so it's almost like the fear that we might have is in the opposite direction of what we should fear, 
if anything, not that we should fear anything as parents, but what we should care about protecting. I love that your podcast is called the Defending Your Early Years podcast. So you're a defender of play in the early years and you're promoting developmentally appropriate play-based education. So what goes on in your programs? What are you doing? Almost everything we're doing here is playing. You know, when we're getting dressed, it's play. When we're having lunch, when we're reading stories, when we're running around outside, it's all play because they're choosing to do it. They're choosing how they do it. They're choosing with whom they do it. It is creative and playful because they're leading it. I think one of the most important things about this place and about what what I'm hoping for all early childhood settings is relationships, just authentic relationships where you know each other and flexibility. So all these different diverse needs can be met. I think the difference between what we're doing here as opposed to what a more traditional preschool setting does is we're not getting them ready for our next step. It's a byproduct of playing. It's a byproduct of feeling safe and happy and confident and, you know, knowing yourself that you're going to become ready for the next step. But that's not our focus. Our focus is really on the right now and meeting the needs of right now and what that looks like through the process of inquiry and co-learning and trial and error and creativity. We're, we're just playing and living together. We're eating when we're hungry. We're napping when we're sleepy. We're crying when we're sad. And it's a, it's a second home for them. It's not what we as a society would picture a classroom being, but it is what we as a society should decide that a classroom is. I love that. So what should parents do if they have concerns that seem valid that their child isn't at a level that they should be at in some way, or they don't seem to have their age-appropriate skills? I don't know, even a child with disabilities or... We have had children that had um, diverse needs. We still have children that have diverse needs. All of them have diverse needs, but then we have children who have additional needs. I believe that all children need play. All children need freedom. All children need to express their personal passions. I like to think that we can meet those needs. There are cases and times where we need to call in extra help and we need to help parents identify support. For us, there are so many local organizations that step in and help with assessment, supporting the parent to understand what the child is going through or where they are developmentally or what special accommodations they need. And then we do our best to meet those needs. We have over the years been able to observe children who are on the autism spectrum within our play-based program. And I've worked at lots of places that have a strong belief that those children need structure and control and rewards, punishments, and, you know, these things that we do not believe, I do not believe, typically developing children need. Nor do I believe that children on the spectrum need those things within my program. None of these children need to be fixed. They all need to express who they are within. They all need to be met where they are, loved, supported, in order to have whatever their needs are met. So if that is to be swinging, moving their body to get that self-regulation, then we figure out a way to put a swing in the classroom and lots of swings outside because we know that that is soothing and that child needs that. 
or if it's heavy work, they need to really move those muscles and lift up heavy things. We fill our environment with those things. If it is a special um, one-on-one support that they need, we look for the resources. And there are times where we don't have the resources, so we have to go outside of our program. For me, it's the goal to support every parent that walks through the store in any way that I can. I don't know all the answers for them, but I will sit with them until we find the answers for their individual child. That's wonderful because I agree with you that that every child, I mean, you could even argue that a child with delays or disabilities deserves maybe even more trust, more belief in them than the typical child. But yeah, they all all deserve that. And uh, what do you think about summer learning loss? Well, I don't, I don't believe in it. I don't believe that when you truly have learned something, deeply understood a concept, you don't lose it. It's like riding a bike. You just don't lose it. I do believe you can forget things that were quickly taught to you, that you learned by memory or that you were taught by rote or that you learned for a particular test or that you had zero interest in, but you had to learn it because it's a part of the curriculum. Those things can surely be lost. In fact, they probably are almost pruned out as soon as the test is over, as soon as the school year is over, as soon as the class is done. But you do not forget the things that you learn through your whole self. When you're using your, I just wrote a post on this, your mind, your body, your hands, your soul, your whole heart, you don't forget that stuff. You don't, you just don't forget it. I always joke, like, (laughs) sense ain't common. Like, we're not all born with common sense. But so many of the things that are, like, common knowledge that you never had to read about or ask questions about or take a class about that we just learn as humans. Like, we, we learn, we observe people walking. We learn to walk. We learn to talk. We learn that some things are heavy and some things are light. We learn that when you throw something up, it comes down. All of these things that we keep gathering. For example, if you watch children at play and they have multiple like items, let's say rocks, because I observed this yesterday, they sort, they arrange, sometimes they line them up like a graph, they count, they look at what's different and what's the same. They can classify them in lots of different ways. This is ingrained in them. They understand these mathematical concepts. They understand these similarities and differences in size and shape and all this. You can't lose that because you know it. There's a difference remembering extrinsically because someone else is telling you you have to and seeking out knowledge. My daughter, for example, wanted a piano in the house and somebody was giving away a piano and I'm like, okay, we're going to get this piano put in the house. And I said, well, you know, I know someone who teaches lessons. Do you want me to sign you up? No, I want to teach myself. I'm like, okay. My other daughter asked for a guitar. This is when they were preteens. And I said, do you want to take a class? You can take a class. And she said, no, I'm going to teach myself. I will enjoy it more and I'll be more proud if I teach it to myself. And I'm like, okay. And they taught themselves. It was a a passion from within them. And they taught themselves at their own pace, in their own way. I know I went way off your question. (laughs) No, that excites me too, because we all need to remember and just remind ourselves maybe every day of What you're talking about is gold. It's this most powerful thing to be able to create your own learning and have that all that autonomy. I mean, you could take lessons for years and never have that. 
again, it's about the way we're setting children up for life rather than college, I guess, which is just so much more important. But yeah, to be trusted to create that learning, there's no replicating that. And it's just so much more powerful than, than any kind of learning. I love that they want to do that stuff. It's so great. And I also love what you said about uh, as soon as they're done with the test, they lose that. So it's like, well, should summer learning be every day? The parent has to drill them on, you know, obviously not, because if they're just going to lose it, you know, it wasn't really embedded learning anyway. It's not going to carry them into the world. It's not going to do what it's supposed to do. So why? I have a post called A Summer to Forget that's about maybe it's okay for your kids to forget, but how important to shift gears and have this more freeing, forgetting, but learning new things the way that you're talking about, teaching yourself things or just learning what this certain kind of water in this pond feels like compared to the ocean or I mean, and learning was, who they are and learning who they are. You know, yeah. what, what would I do if no one was telling me what to do every minute of the day? That's what I think summer should be about. Honestly, that's yeah. what I think every day should be about. Yeah. But if summer's the time that we're giving children, then then we need to give it to them. I mean, I would give it after school too, like the way you described yeah. for yourself that yeah. you had that. But with that post or anytime I've brought up this idea, I get the response, well, that's a privileged perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm sad that that is a privileged perspective. I'm very sad that young children of color or children with a lower economic status aren't seen to be able to have the same freedom. It upsets me because what I know about play and what I know about how much you actually learn and how far that will actually take you in this world and that sense of self that you're going to develop. I know that every child in some, in, in some cases, especially the child that is not privileged deserves that. I agree. Part of what I want families to understand, I want to make sure that black and brown children are having access to play. I read studies about the number of words that children hear and that there's less words in this type of family and more words in that type of family. And I just squint my nose up because I'm in a brown family and there's so many words and I'm around a lot of brown families and there's so many words I've grown up without many means and there's so many words and so much dialogue and so many experiences there may be different from the traditional white or American experience, but they're rich listening to family stories and playing games with our families. And so I think that we just need to shift the measuring tool that we use for some of our assessments of young children. Yeah. So that it's inclusive and values more diverse things. I couldn't agree more. And I think it comes from the same perspective that we're talking about, that we want to help some group of children that we perceive as disadvantaged. We're trying to help give them a step up, but that's the wrong way to look at it because this is actually getting in their way and maybe creating a deficit in the kind of time that's so much more valuable. These kinds of experiences children get from free play, they're ultimately much more important for developing higher learning skills and self-confidence You know, back to the story you started about yourself, you actually have been able to stay in tune with yourself and how confidence building that was. I don't think about that a lot for myself, but it's actually true for me too. For us, it was dolls. My sister and I, we lived through our dolls. But what we learned about relationships and people and these stories that we created about these families, 
I love Stuart Brown's book where he talks about how as adults, we can say where our talents come from. We can look back and see, oh, that's the way that I played. He goes into this whole thing about all these different areas. I looked at them all that he suggested and I thought, oh, I'm none of those. But then I realized, oh my gosh, storytelling. It's a type of talent that's developed through play. And it was what I was drawn to as a child. And it's what I'm drawn to now, understanding the story. What's behind this? What's happening with these children in this family? Anyway, yeah. It's so deep, isn't it? It's so deep. And it's so much more fun as a parent, too, when we can just relax and trust a little more. And like doing nothing is doing a lot. And it's his healing, you know, when children can come home from school, even a center like you have, which sounds so idyllic and still come home and switch gears into this, you know, I just want to sit and look out the window, or I just want to, I don't know, do nothing and just see where my mind goes. And yep. And I love to watch that. I love to just observe the children as they come in and see what's going to spark their interest. What are they going to do? Where are they going to hang out? What, you know, that to me, I just wait for that. I don't put things out. We have our materials that are our materials. They know what's there. And I just don't know what's going to come of it each day. And I love to see where it goes and how it develops. And we've had balls in a basket in our classroom since the beginning of the school year. I don't think I recall anyone ever touching them. And the other day, they had all the balls out and they arranged like five different games with the balls. And the games kept getting more intricate and involving other materials and rules and you know, it was just so interesting to watch a group of three and four-year-olds get a spark for an idea from a material that's so just simple and open-ended and play for over an hour on their own, going through conflict and negotiation and figuring it all out. But everybody had one goal and it was to keep that play going. So I got to witness that. And it's just, it's amazing to see. I'm totally with you on that. I love it with an infant. I love it with a toddler. I love it as long as my kids will let me watch them, which unfortunately wasn't that like about past around seven or eight. They were like, stop watching me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with a dollhouse or something like just, oh my gosh, I get goosebumps. I love it so much. And parents could enjoy, maybe enjoy the experience so much more if we took a little pressure off of ourselves. Yep. And tune out the, you know, people that are making us doubters and listen to people like you. <laughs> and where can we hear more about you and the work that you're doing? I know you have your podcast, the DEY podcast with Keisha Reed. You can find that on DEY.org. I really enjoy talking with teachers who are working in classrooms and bringing play to public schools or bringing play to communities where maybe there's not as much access so many wonderful people doing lots of great work. And I'm just excited to be able to amplify their voices and and spread the word about all we can do for children, all we can do uh, really for society, because, you know, anything we can do for children, we're doing for society. So that sounds really inspiring. I haven't listened to enough of them and I'm going to listen to all of them because this is, I, I need this inspiration. Well, I'll be listening to you while you're listening to me. <laughs> It's so great to be with a kindred spirit in this work who I've, again, known and admired for so long. Thank you. Thank you for Thank sharing you so with us. Much. This was great. Thanks. Please check out the other podcasts and posts on my website. They're all categorized by topic, and you should be able to find whatever you're looking for. 
There are many of them. Also, if you're not aware of my books, please check them out. They're bestsellers on Amazon. No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame, and Elevating Child Care, A Guide to Respectful Parenting are also available on audio at audible.com, and you can get one for free by using a link in the liner notes of this podcast. You can also get them in paperback at Amazon and an ebook at Amazon, Google Play, Barnes & Noble, and apple.com. And if you find this podcast helpful, you can help it to continue by giving it a positive review on iTunes and by supporting my sponsors. Thank you again. We can do this.